Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that this morning's worship service will glorify you. We thank you for the time of singing, the time of reading your word together. I pray, Lord, that you be with me as I speak and preach your word, Lord, that I, that I preach what you've given me and put on my heart this past week for your church, church to hear. So, Lord, I pray that you give me wisdom, give me boldness in what to say. Lord, I just want to lift up Soundview Pregnancy Center. We just thank you for all the work that they're doing. We pray that you continue to bless their ministry. Lord, I pray they can feel your spirit moving, moving in Long Island, moving in Center Reach. And Lord, I pray that, that um, the Walk for Life would just be a great encouraging time of fellowship and fundraising for this um, amazing organization. So we love you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can make your way to John, John chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel. And the questions that we're answering and looking at, hopefully each week as we go through these verses, is who is Jesus and why does it matter? Or who is Jesus and what do we do with learning who Jesus is? And as John writes his gospel, that's the point of his gospel. That's the point of his message is to tell the readers who Jesus is. So we've been going verse by verse, section by section, looking at who Jesus is and what's our response to that. What should we be doing because of that? As you're turning there, John chapter 3, I want to share just a little story that happened to me in middle school. I went to public school, and as most of you who've been to public schools know, that uh, there's really not a lot of Christians there, uh, more so nowadays than, than in the past. But even the Christians that you might meet, I, I do this, Christians, their life looks nothing like Jesus and the commandments that he gives us and the love for Jesus. So I was in the eighth grade, and I got assigned a partner for a school project for that class. And weeks later, as we're talking, I, we both figure out that each other are Christians. We both claim to be Christians, and we talk about our churches. We're talking about what it means to be a Christian. And she asks me a question that I didn't really know how to answer. She said, David, what, what kind of Christian are you? And I was like, uh, the one that follows Jesus, right? I mean, when in doubt, say Jesus. That's usually the right answer in, in church. I was like, I don't know. I follow Jesus. I read the Bible. I don't know. I go to, I go to church. But what she was really asking me was, what denomination are you a part of? Now, eighth grade David had no clue what this meant. Right? So I'm just like, uh, I don't know. And I'm like, well, what are you? Right? I was like, I'm going to throw it back at her. What are you? And she said something that I'll, that I'll never forget. It was, a, it was a, an amazing answer. She said, I'm a born-again Christian. And I was like, oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? That's a good answer. Right? And I, I kind of knew what she was talking about. And it wasn't until a few years later that I would say I really knew what she was talking about. Right, so looking back, I'm like, oh, come on, middle school David, you could have done a little bit better. And, and you know, so I, I loved her answer. It always has stuck with me. I'm a born-again Christian. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at a few verses. And in these verses, we're going to see a private conversation that takes place between Jesus Christ and a man named Nicodemus. We're going to be reading this phrase two or three times. This phrase is going to be, born again. We sang it in one of the songs, I've been born again into your family. We've been singing about new life in the songs as well this morning. But overall, the picture of this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is all about salvation. And my hope and my prayer is that as we look at these verses in this morning's scripture passage, that we can use these and, and, and take it to heart and understand them and use them as we hopefully evangelize and tell others about what God does when it comes to salvation. So 
in your Bibles, we're actually going to backtrack. I had Matt read the end of chapter 2. I didn't have time last week to look into these few verses. But in John chapter 2, verse 23, that's where we'll start. And in these two or three verses, it serves as a transitional section between Jesus cleansing the temple, starting his public ministry, turning water into wine, or turning, yeah, turning water to wine, and now it's going to transition to a private conversation with Nicodemus. So verse 23 of chapter 2. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So after Jesus, and we looked at this last week, after he clears out the temple of, the, of its impure worship, of the defiling that's happening in the name of religion, we read here that Jesus stays in Jerusalem. He stays in this area during the rest and the, and the whole Passover feast. And because of that, John writes this, many believed in his, names, in his name when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. Now John doesn't record them. I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. In his gospel, John has the least amount of miracles listed in compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we see here that Jesus is doing miracles. He doesn't record them, but he's doing miracles. Because of those miracles, we read that many people are believing in and following Jesus. When they see the miracles, the signs, the wonders that he's doing, they're following him. But we really read, and Jesus and John gives us an insight as to their hearts, whether or not their faith was true or not. And what he says is, is um, it says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Rather than Jesus fully giving himself and surrendering to the people and claiming to be and revealing to be the Messiah to them and accepting their praise and their worship and their devotion, it says he knew their hearts and he did not entrust himself to them. Jesus did not embrace their false faith that was manifested or made because of the signs and the wonders that they saw Jesus doing. He knew their hearts, and only Jesus knows our hearts. And what John does throughout his gospel, and it can be a little bit tricky, and hopefully as we go through it, we won't get lost, John makes a lot of distinctions between what it means to be a true believer of Jesus with genuine faith, with saving faith, and those who have a shallow or superficial or not a true faith, saving faith in Jesus. Now, genuine saving faith, it demands a wholehearted commitment, a full surrender to Jesus as the Lord of your life. Now, these believers that we read here in this section, they're caught up by the signs, by the wonders, by the miracles that Jesus are doing, and based on what John tells us, their faith is shallow. It's superficial. It's based on what they're seeing. There's no repentance. There's, there's no need to ask for forgiveness. They just saw these amazing things and they're flocking to Jesus and, and probably hopes to see more amazing things. And eventually, this masses of followers that Jesus would have following him, it's funny, whenever people follow Jesus, what ends up dispersing them or what ends up happening with the crowd going away is that Jesus says something and the crowd leaves. Right? It's almost like the opposite. Like, Jesus, you have this huge crowd and now you just said something and they're going away. In John chapter 6, we see that this crowd's following Jesus, and we talked about this through the I Am statements. He gives them food. He multiplies food and feeds the 5,000. And then after that, it says the crowd went away because the things that Jesus was saying, the demand to be his follower was a cost too high for them to do. So they left. They walked away. They said, Jesus, who can do this? Who can possibly do this? And they walk away. 
Over and over, we see in John's Gospel, Jesus is not interested in the thousands and the crowds coming at him with their false or superficial faith. He's rather after true saving faith in him. And Jesus also knows the fickleness and the instability of man's heart. Then that's why he didn't embrace and have faith in the crowd. A different way to say this is the crowd had faith in Jesus, but he did not have faith in them. The crowd believed in Jesus, but he did not believe in them. Just a little example is, remember the same crowd that would chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. Right Days later, that same crowd chants what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the insurrectionist. Give us the rebel. Give us Barabbas. Right? The fickleness of man's heart. And I just want to say one more thing on this little section, then we'll transition to Nicodemus. We see some parallels to this, to this passage, and even last week's, when it comes to God's plan for salvation. As, as God, Jesus, when he single-handedly cleanses the temple of its impure worship with a messianic zeal, John quotes from Psalm 69, which points to the Messiah's zeal, it's the same parallel that we can see God's hatred of sin. As Jesus hated what the sin going on in the temple, and he, he casts them out, chases them out, we see on the other side of salvation, God hates sin. He hates impure worship. He doesn't accept it. The second thing is, as Jesus accurately predicts his own resurrection, he says, uh, within three days, I'll, I'll destroy this temple and I'll build it up again. With that, we see that God provides new life in Christ through his resurrection. Romans 4 talks about that, being justified because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It says that we've been baptized into his death in order that we've been raised to the newness of life. And then another thing we see here is that Jesus truly knows man's heart. You, you can't trick Jesus. You can't trick God. He knows. And we see that salvation comes only to those with a genuine, saving faith in Jesus. There's a difference between cheap grace and God's grace. There's a difference between shallow faith and genuine faith in Jesus. Now this serves as a transition, as we're going to see this conversation with Nicodemus I would argue a man who has shallow faith. A man whose faith is not transformative. A man whose faith, again, he, he's just seeing Jesus do some things and he's, he's asking questions. He's not sure what to make of Jesus. Now if you have your notes, as we look in John chapter 3, we're going to look at three main ideas. The first is we're going to see transformative faith or being born again. We're going to see God's plan of salvation. And I'll emphasize that. God's plan of salvation and then we'll see Nicodemus' blindness. So John chapter one, or John chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to see transformative faith. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, before we go further and talk about the conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus have, we have to talk about who Nicodemus is. We learn a lot from these few verses. In verse 1, we see that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader, a religious ruler. He's also called the ruler of the Jews. In verse 12, Jesus would call him a title, the teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the governing council of Israel. It was made up of 71 members, and they had authority. They had authority over civil, criminal, 
and religious matters. They could make arrests. They could try people, but they couldn't do capital punishment, right? Because they're still under Roman law and Roman authority. The point I'm making here is Nicodemus is a powerful man. He's a powerful man. We also see him mentioned two more times throughout John's Gospel. In John chapter 7, we see a little bit of Nicodemus' nature as a ruler. He rules fairly. He's all about the law. He's all about the rules. The Pharisees were plotting to try to arrest Jesus and do it against the law and try to silence him. And Nicodemus is seen standing up and saying, wait a minute, doesn't our law say he stands at trial first? And because of that, they attack him. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they jump on Nicodemus. But we see he rules fairly. We also learn at the end of John chapter 19, at the end of the gospel, after Jesus Christ dies on the cross, his body's taken, and, it sees, and we see that Nicodemus, he, he brings 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh, right, this perfume to anoint Jesus' dead body. That's costly. That's a lot of money, 75 pounds. So he rules fairly, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's well-known. He wasn't a nobody. He was a respected leader and teacher of Israel, and here we see him coming to Jesus. And in verse 2, we see when he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus at night, or by night. Now, there are different theories why we believe, or some people believe, that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. One is, maybe he was afraid to be seen with Jesus. Jesus was controversial. Jesus was making outrageous claims. Maybe he didn't want to put his reputation on the line. We don't know, but that's an option, maybe. Maybe he didn't want people to think that as a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus didn't want to look like he was affirming Jesus' mission to speak on behalf of the other Sanhedrin. Right? The people would say, oh, look, oh, Nicodemus, you know, the Sanhedrin, he's talking to Jesus. That means the other guys must like him too. Maybe, but probably most likely, nighttime would be the best time to have an undisturbed conversation with Jesus. If you remember and you read the Gospels, crowds of the thousands are flocking to Jesus. He's busy. John mentioned that he's healing people. He's doing miracles. Also, Nicodemus is not a nobody. Like I said, he's well-known. People are probably going to him, and he's going to them. I don't think we give Nicodemus enough credit. Sometimes we just say, oh, look, he's a coward. He came to Jesus by night. He was afraid. But I would say he, pr he wanted to have a talk with Jesus, an undisturbed talk with Jesus. The important thing is really not when he came, but that he came to Jesus. Nicodemus was hoping to find the light in the darkness of night. In verse 2, we see his respect and his reverence for Jesus. In verse 2, Nicodemus says this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Notice how Nicodemus addresses Jesus, Rabbi. It's a, it's a title of respect. It's almost a title of like, uh, of, of almost like the, um, of equal. You know, I'm a rabbi, I'm the teacher of Israel, Jesus, you're a rabbi, you're a teacher. We see Nicodemus not with hostility, right? Not with anger, but what? With being fair and respectful to Jesus, rabbi. He believes that Jesus is truly sent from God. He says it, but he says he believes he's sent from God because he sees the miracles that Jesus is doing. And if you notice, however, Nicodemus does not believe and say that, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the proclaimed Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. But rather, he addresses Jesus as teacher, as, as rabbi, as one who's a teacher sent from God. And in verse 3, what happens is we see Jesus answering Nicodemus' question. 
And if you read carefully, you're like, well, Nicodemus never asked him a question. And I love it. Even in this section, you see the divinity of Jesus. He knows the hearts of people. He knows why Nicodemus is talking to him. He answers his unspoken question and says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, there's that phrase, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus knows his heart. He speaks bluntly to Nicodemus, answering his question. And this phrase, born again, what, what is he talking about? And I'll, I'll make it hopefully simplistic. Here Jesus is talking about the new life that we all receive from the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus. The Bible in the New Testament has, and in the Old Testament has metaphors of, of having a dead heart. And that when we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit makes our hearts beat, makes our hearts alive again, gives us new life. Paul in 2 Corinthians would sum, sum it up this way beautifully. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is born again. You could substitute it there. He has new life. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of us on earth, and I, I'm looking around, all of us in here are physically alive. Right? I'm looking around. I don't think I have to call an ambulance on anybody yet, or hopefully never. Right? But we're all alive physically. But the problem is that apart from saving faith in Jesus, God's word says that we're spiritually dead. Those who are not in Christ, who do not have the Holy Spirit, are dead. They're spiritually dead. In Ephesians 2, Paul starts off this chapter by saying that before we follow Jesus, we're dead in our sins, that we're following the course of this world, that we're, we're, we're sons of disobedience against God. We need to be born again, and this rebirth is not physical. It's spiritual. And I said this before, and I said it with the youth group. It's not like when you, when you become a Christian, your, your face changes a different shape, and, and you look like a different person physically. It's talking about spiritual birth spiritually born again, spiritual transformation. And our faith in Jesus should transform our lives. Since we've been born again, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, and it, He transforms our hearts and our minds to become more and more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. He convicts us of our sin. He makes the Word of God active and alive, and we're born again spiritually, and we're transformed because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And here's my question. For us, have you been born again? You don't have to answer out loud. Just, just take a minute and think about it. Have you been born again? Has the Holy Spirit led you to true, genuine, saving faith? Have you repented and surrendered to Jesus? If you claim to follow Jesus, but your life looks nothing like him, there's a problem. right? With that new nature, with our new hearts, we have a new heart and a new nature, and we're born again to what? to become and to look more and more like Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One pastor would say this, without the spiritual washing of the soul, a cleaning accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, no one can enter into God's kingdom. And I think it's important to remember that. And as a church, as we hopefully are, are, are telling others about Jesus, the spiritual truth is that they're physically alive, but they're, they're spiritually dead. And we know from God's word that death or sin has a payment, and the payment or the penalty of sin is death. And apart from Jesus, if you're not saved, you spend an eternity separate from Jesus. 
So as a church, do we love others the way that Jesus commands us to? Do we serve others as Jesus commands us to? My hope and my prayer, as I mentioned this last week, is that people can look to New Village Church in this community, in this city, and look at us as a, as a light shining out in the darkness, as a church that's known for our love for the Lord, our love for Jesus, and our love for one another. I hope and pray that our church always points unbelievers and points people for their need for Jesus, their need for a transformative faith. Because Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, if you're not born again, you can't enter God's kingdom. Which means what? You have to be born again. You have to have the Spirit give you new life. So we see Jesus pointing out something to Nicodemus, a transformative faith, being born again. The second thing as we continue here, we see God's plan for salvation. We'll, we'll continue reading in verse 4. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I, just, that I, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus' response to Jesus is something like this. Jesus, how can I, how can you expect me to be born again? How can you expect me to become a new creature? How is that possible? How do I give up everything and start fresh and start over and start new? He might be saying, how can a man my age, someone older, possibly start over? He's confused. He's clearly confused by Jesus' statement. And I believe he's speaking in hyperbole or sarcasm when he asks Jesus, you know, Jesus, you expect me to go into my mother's womb a second time and be born again? I don't think he's that foolish or that, that ignorant to think Jesus is talking physically, right? But I think he's using it as sarcasm, like, like it's so impossible to do this, Jesus. How, how do you do this? And then in verse 5, we see Jesus' response. He reveals God's plan for salvation. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, or flesh produces flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Spirit produces spirit. Throughout the Bible, unless one is born of water and spirit, that verse, that, that, that little sentence, has led to a whole lot of heretical teachings and preachings and beliefs, especially on baptism and things like that. Now, in the Old Testament, and we'll look there because Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, one who knows the Old Testament. Right? I mean, their knowledge was, was amazing. They studied it all day. That's what they did as a Pharisee. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, water represents cleansing. Even as John the Baptist is doing water baptisms, it's talking about repentance, cleansing. Spirit, in the Old Testament, refers to renewal or new life, at sometimes empowerment. We read in Judges and Samson, the spirit rushed upon him and he gains the strength, right? The spirit empowers. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll give you a few seconds. Ezekiel chapter 36. I truly believe as Jesus is talking to the teacher of Israel, he's pointing Nicodemus to this passage. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'll start in verse 24. 
Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle, here it is, clean water on you, and you shall be clean. What's the point of the water? Clean. You shall be clean from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. There's the water and there's the spirit. A new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Now Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and I don't think he's saying anything that's super profoundly new to Nicodemus. He's having the issue connecting what Jesus is saying pointing it back to what the scriptures have already revealed. That being born of water, being born of spirit, new or cleansing water, new life, spirit. The Old Testament points continually what God will do for his people, the promises of God. He'll give them a regenerate new heart, made clean and alive by the Holy Spirit. And this is important to talk about, it's important to say, but salvation, being born again, is done entirely by God. Being born again is done entirely by God. Jesus would say in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Only the flesh can affect the flesh or, or, or work towards the flesh. And it says that which is born of spirit is spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can affect spiritual transformation. Regeneration is entirely on his work, unaided by our own human effort. And here's this truth. We cannot work or ever think that we've ever deserved eternal life based on our own merits. And I know we all know this, but sometimes to take a moment and think about that, Jesus did not come from heaven to earth to die because we were so good and we deserved it. It's not like he looked down and said, David, I'm so pleased with you, David. You're so deserving of of my death on the cross. You earned it. Great job. I'm going to come down. I'm going to die for you. Rather, it's entirely based on God's goodness, on his mercy, on his love for us. The Bible is clear that even while we were still enemies, right, children of wrath, enemies of God, Christ died for us. It's it's, a simple thing to understand, but it's amazing when you actually think about it for more than a second. Jesus didn't die because of how good I am. He died because of how good he is, how good God is, our loving, merciful, forgiving God. And I said it last week, and I'll say it every week. As a reminder, we don't get to heaven by being a good person. We don't get to heaven by going to church. We don't get to heaven by the faith of other people, of the faith of our parents. Jesus says, by only being born again, Can we belong to God's kingdom? And how are you born again? True saving faith in Jesus. Repenting of your sins, surrendering to him, following Jesus. As we continue on, verse 7, Jesus continues to talk to Nicodemus. He says this, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And here Jesus is using a word play. The word pneuma both means wind and spirit. And what Jesus is basically saying is you can feel and you can hear the wind around you, 
but you ultimately don't know where it comes from and where it's going. You can see the effects the wind has on things, but you can't control it, you can't bottle it up, you can't predict where it's going next. And he makes the, the link, right here's the spiritual side. The same is true for the Holy Spirit. You may not know fully how the Spirit works. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's God. We can't fully understand how the Spirit works, but we can see and feel the effect of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We can see the effect of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives and their hearts. In James chapter 2, he says, faith without deeds is dead. He's not saying that you need to have good works to have faith and good works save you. What he's saying is when you're saved, you will produce good works because you'll know a, a, a tree by its fruit, by what it produces. And as a Christian, we should be living out and visibly showing people the love of Christ, how we treat them, how we talk to them, how we love them, how we love each other. Right? We might not fully understand how the Spirit makes our dead hearts alive, but we feel it. We see it in other people's lives. And as we share the gospel, it's important that we try not to over-explain and go down these huge rabbit holes to talk about everything that happens spiritually. Let the Holy Spirit do his work and point the person, as a Christian, you point them to the gospel. You tell them what Jesus has done in your life. You tell them why Jesus came. You point them for need for repentance and faith in Jesus and let the Holy Spirit transform hearts. That's what he does. It's not our job. We're commanded to go and tell them about Jesus. God will do the work, not you. But he uses us. He uses us. So number one, we see transformative faith. Number two, we see God's plan for salvation. And the third thing we'll look at in the last three or four verses is Nicodemus' blindness. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I tell, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And here in these verses, I believe we see Nicodemus' blindness. He can't understand what Jesus is saying. In verse 9, he starts off by saying, Jesus, how can these things be? He, he's confused. And Jesus' response, is, it's a little bit, it's kind of calling him out a bit. He says, are you not the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? You don't understand the things that I've revealed to you in, in the Old Testament that, that you should know? Have you not understand, understood these? And in verse 11, we, it seemingly, we can tell where Nicodemus is spiritually. In verse 11, Jesus says, but you do not receive our testimony. And this goes further than just Nicodemus. John, in, his, in the gospel here, he uses a plural version of the word you. And he might be making the connection of, of you, Nicodemus, is referring to Israel as a whole. You, the teacher of Israel, you, representing Israel, you have not and do not receive our testimony. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we continually see the blindness of the Jews, Israel, but also especially the Pharisees, which Jesus constantly calls out. Out of all the people groups Jesus spoke to and hung out with and did miracles and, and everything and, and loved and served, the religious leaders were the ones that were his biggest enemies, the one that he combated and had to call out. And speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus would say this, 
They're the blind leading the blind. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was blind, I really wouldn't want a blind person leading me. Why? Because we'd both be tripping over the same things. I'd rather someone see lead me. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you, the blind leaders, are damning the people because of your religion, because of your pride, because of your ego, because of your not acceptance and, and lack of understanding of what the Scriptures say. And as we look at Nicodemus and this conversation, we can see kind of two sides of his unbelief. The first is there's an intellectual disbelief. He believes, going back from, to, the, to the couple uh, first verses, that he believes that Jesus is sent from God, but he doesn't believe he's God. He believes he's a teacher that's sent from God, but he's not God. <clears throat> the spiritual side of his unbelief is he, nowhere in here does he admit to Jesus that I need to be born again. Jesus, what you're saying is true. You're right. I, I need to be born again. How, how, he, he, he asks, how can these things be? But he doesn't ask him, how can I do this? I want to do it now. He doesn't admit he's a helpless sinner walking in the same darkness that he's meeting Jesus in right now. <clears throat> and these two unbeliefs are true for us even as we share the gospel, even as we proclaim Jesus to other people. There's going to be an intellectual disbelief of Jesus. You're going to hear phrases like this, well, Jesus really isn't God. Or Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Or Jesus was just, was just a prophet. Or Jesus was just a made-up person. Or you're going to hear this intellectual disbelief of who Jesus is. And you've probably heard this before. I think it's C.S. Lewis who, who coined it, but he might have been quoting from somebody else. He has the three L titles for Jesus. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Right? And you've probably heard this before. You either have to believe that Jesus is a liar. Why? Because he made outrageous claims. He claims to be God. And if he's not God, he's a liar. He's not a good teacher. He's a liar. He's either a lunatic because he might think he's actually God. <clears throat> How can he be a good moral teacher if he truly thinks that he's God? He'd, he'd have to be crazy, a liar, or the last one he says is Lord, that Jesus is actually who he says he is, that he's the Lord, he's the Messiah. So as we share the gospel, we're going to see intellectual unbelief of who Jesus is, but we continue to point them to God's word. We're going to see a spiritual side of it too. You might hear this, well, I'm a good person. I don't need a savior. I, I can do it by myself. God is pleased with me. When I go to heaven or when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because I deserve it. I, I've done so much good for the world. And really this line of thinking, right, saying I'm a good person, I don't need a savior, you're really saying, you know, Jesus, I see you on the cross, I see you dying for me, but you don't have to die. You know, your death means nothing to me. Go die for somebody else. I don't need your death. So there's going to be that spiritual unbelief in the hearts and the minds of people as we share the gospel with them. But we point to the scriptures of the truth that we're all dead in our sin. Right? And, that, and that's what separates Christianity from other, other religions or religious leaders. I said this last week. Other religions say, do this, do that, then you'll be good, then you'll appease the God that you want to worship and you'll get the afterlife and you'll get some sort of life. Where Christianity says you can't do anything. Jesus would make it clear, the Bible makes it clear, you can't do anything. And that sets up the problem. What do you mean I can't do anything? H how do I possibly get saved? And the truth is, Jesus did it all for us. Right? That, so that's where, how we lead people, as we lead them to the Lord and we, we have gospel conversations. We say spiritually, sin is sin. We're, we're all dead in our sin. And there's nothing we can do to work and earn and get on God's good side 
And the beauty of the gospel is we don't have to. Jesus did that work for us. We're saved by the blood that was shed on the cross, his blood and his alone. As we share the gospel, it's important, important to point out to unbelievers the need to make Jesus your Lord and your Savior. When you make Jesus your Lord, you say, Jesus, I'm surrendering. You're in control. Whatever you say, I will trust and believe that it's for my best interest and for your glory. Right? That's what it means to make Jesus your Lord. A lot of people have a problem with that because we like to be in control. The second thing is Jesus has to be your Savior. Why? Because you can't save yourself. You need a Savior. It's not either or. Jesus has to be and must be your Lord and Savior. And here's the encouragement. As we keep sharing the gospel with others, I feel like some of the burden and fear is kind of taken away when we understand that the Holy Spirit does the work of heart transformation. All we do is be a vessel and point them to who Jesus is and what is our response based on who Jesus is. And that's how we're going through the Gospel of John. Now next week, this was kind of Nicodemus part one. Next week we'll look at the second half of this conversation, which really turns more into Jesus just straight talking to Nicodemus and him listening. But let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we just thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. That we're not trapped and we're not dead in our sin, but we have hope because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. You gave us our Savior. You came and saved us from our sin. I pray, Lord, as we go out this week and head back to work or school or, <clears throat> or just wherever we're going, I pray, Lord, you give us gospel moments. You give us time and you give us just the ability to preach and speak truth of the gospel into someone's life. I pray for boldness while we do that because it is scary. It is intimidating. But I pray that we're always fueled by love of you for sharing the gospel with others, that we don't want to see them spend an eternity in hell without you. Jesus, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for your goodness. I pray, Lord, that even as we leave here, we can ponder these questions and ask ourselves, are we really born again? Or did we just want the get out of hell free card? I pray that we can be changed by your Holy Spirit, changed by the word of God, that we become more and more like Jesus every day. Jesus, we thank you for loving and dying on the cross for us. And in your holy name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>